Hey, besties, welcome to another episode of the Life We Deserve podcast. Today, we have a fantastic interview. Our interview is with Marie. Marie is a Bay Area real estate entrepreneur, former corporate real estate and finance strategist, and currently completing a doctorate in technology and innovation. She has a broad business background, having worked in pharmaceutical research, credit marketing, and risk, real estate, and international retail consulting. This breadth of experience has enabled her to find gaps in the real estate marketplace where small family businesses can find incredible returns. So let's get into the show. Hi, Marie. Welcome to the show. Hi, Remy. Good morning. Good morning. So excited to have you here. And one of the things that we've talked about at length in our chats getting ready for the show is that we are both super excited to help normalize real estate investing for women. And so I'm very, very honored to have you here with me to talk about your experience. You've definitely been in the trenches and I can't wait to have you share your story with everyone. So my first question for you is tell us a little bit about your story. Tell us your earliest experience with real estate investing. Okay. So my parents actually did not sell their first house that they bought. Actually, I should back up. I am a child of an immigrant on one side and an only child on the other of immigrants. So there's no big family network for my parents to fall on. So they had to bootstrap and do a lot of the stuff themselves 100%. And so when they first got married, they bought a trailer park home and started saving money immediately to buy a house. And that was in the early 60s. And they bought five acres and a very tiny house in Malibu before Malibu was the in place to live. And that was their first real estate purchase. My sister and I were born at the end of the 60s. So my first memories actually of their real estate investing was cleaning the brush on these five acres to make sure that house didn't burn down every year. And kids are free labor. And (laughs) trust me, my parents used us. That was, you know, an annual ritual that we would drive up from San Diego and clean those five acres. And it saved that property multiple times. So still have to do that fire abatement. I've had plenty of land sales where we've had to go in and do that. So important. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's a good thing to teach your kids that homes, you know, they need to be maintained and you have to put in a lot of labor. And I see nothing wrong with dragging your five-year-old out and having them pick weeds. I think that that's a really good lesson Sure, that everybody's contributing and it wears them out too. They sleep well. (laughs) Parenting tip, bonus. (laughs) So that was probably my earliest memory of their investing. And then in the early eighties, they bought another property in San Diego and that was the one that actually taught me what not to do. Yeah. That ended up being a crystal meth manufacturing lab because my parents are super sweet and they were accepting <laughs> that, that sentence right there. I just have to like ended up being a meth lab because my parents are sweet. That's like yeah. such a story we got to hear. You know, was it a single family, this one? Or it was, what was a it? single family property. Okay. And, you know, three bedroom, two bath. And they were cooking meth in one of the bathrooms. And so after the police broke in and 
busted all the doors and windows. And, you know, my parents were peeking in the window and they saw all these guns laid out and it was a really not a good thing. So. And as a, a child, I'm sure that was kind of a scary experience for you too. I didn't necessarily understand the gravity. I thought it was, you know, that in the eighties in San Diego, that was the crystal meth capital of the world. So there was a lot going on regarding drugs and cocaine and, and crystal meth. So it was kind of one of those, oh, so it happened to my parents thing. But the why it happened, because this was a nice neighborhood. We knew the neighbors and yet none of the neighbors called my parents to say, you know, there's something up with your property. There's all these cars driving by. The wife moved out and now it's the father with the kid and he's got all these random friends. We learned all this stuff afterwards. Yeah. So this really planted a seed in my mind that you have to be involved in your neighborhood. When you own property, you are more than a real estate investor. You're a community builder. And if you don't know your neighbors, if you're not in touch with your tenants, you can really get into trouble. And my parents could have lost that house. The police wouldn't let them go into it for three months. Because the guy who had been arrested and thrown in jail, he told them that he owned the house. And at that time, my parents are like scrambling to get a lawyer to try and get back into the house to clean things up. And so once again, Karen and I were scooped up for free labor and we had to paint the walls with this aluminum paint to stop the sulfur from leaching through and all the chemicals and uh, Lord knows what I was exposed to at the time. But yeah. Anyway, so that was kind of the early on what not to do. And then since that time, my parents have always been more stringent about who they rented to. And they tended to rent to people who would stay about 10 years. Okay. And so very little turnover, also very little maintenance. There was a lot of rubber banding and scotch taping, which my sister and I both agreed we would never, ever do. So another one um, to do lesson. Yeah, because you're always having to fix it. Right. And versus if you're looking at purchasing any property, any real estate investment property, really you start seeing the true benefit after you've owned it for 10 years. Yeah. So if you walk into a property thinking you're going to do a quick flip and make a ton of money, that's really not the way to think about the big leaps that you can make with equity and rental increases and that sort of thing. So you went from kind of the what not to do's, but you must have also absorbed what to do over that time period to motivate you to become an investor yourself. Well, seeing the cash flow that my mother is now retired on, you know, those investments. I mean, my dad, his income was probably more on the lower middle class side of things. I mean, my sister and I were dressed by a goodwill and we rarely went out to eat and you know, there was a lot of scrimping and saving as most children of immigrants have in their life. And, you know, that just shows you how you can invest with very little. And seeing the way things work and being able to see the value, you know, drive an old car. You know, my mom was driving her 66 Volvo until it had 300,000 miles on it. Nice. So just seeing where, you know, it was very standard middle-class values where you invest in solid, equitable things and education is really valued. That mentality really has nothing to do with how much money you have. It's how you spend your money. So we were probably on the lower end of, you know, income, but within that class level and structure in terms of 
how money was spent. So yeah, so I didn't really think too much about investing in real estate. You know, I went through college, I went to UCSD and I have a biochem degree and went to work in pharmaceutical development after school. And then realized one of these things is not like the others looking around the chem lab. (laughs) And that was me. And I just had a very different mentality. I remember my boss coming in and he had some extra budget and asked what we should spend it on. And pretty much everybody else in the lab was talking about chemicals and machinery. And I wanted to build a soundproof wall so the investors wouldn't come in and disturb us as we were working so that they could view us through this glass panel. And I just, you know, I thought, yeah, why am I not thinking the way these others do? So I ended up going to Cornell for my MBA and I really found my place in terms of my mindset and my skill set really is more of a business mentality in terms of I like to create things and build things. And so when I came back to California, I had had a summer internship in the Bay Area. And, you know, it's funny how when you're young, you make decisions. But I went to Safeway in Oakland and realized all Safeway in Oakland carried all the ethnic foods, all varieties. I wasn't going to have to go to five different stores to get all the food that I liked. And I just had this like conniption that this was my home. I needed to leave (laughs) because of the food assortment in the safe way. Food food motivates a lot of people to move to the area. Yeah. Well, I just thought what a wonderful place that everyone here can get what they want in one spot here because it's everything. So I started working in Wells Fargo in their consumer loan division and learned a lot about risk analysis and demographics and how data is consolidated into forecasting models and predictability and what numbers mean and what credit ranking is and all that sort of thing and how big business looks at individual consumers. So I got a really good view as to the reality of these numbers and how they're not real and how they're crafted and the gaps in those numbers. So I was able to use that later on. So in the meantime, I'm living in an attic and I I kid you not, I lived in an attic that I painted white. So it did not look so much like an attic with, you know, drop downstairs and the whole nine yards to pay 1500 a month off of my student loans so that I could get rid of that debt as quickly as I could. So much like when you were a kid in the Goodwill clothing in the older car, you were making sacrifices to further yourself financially. Exactly. And real estate is one of those sacrifices. You can save more money by choosing to live in a cheaper neighborhood than pretty much anything else you choose. True. So my friends who were spending probably 2000 a month on their real estate, housing themselves because they had to have a one-bedroom apartment to themselves, which back in the day, that's how much it would have been in San Francisco. I was spending 300 a month for my attic, sharing with four other adults, you know, this house. And I was so I was able to pay off that 1500 a month of my student loans. So I was able to get out of debt, which is important. And then I started saving to buy a house. And my sister started saving as well. And We ended up renting an apartment in San Francisco and realized after about five years that, wow, this apartment is super under market in terms of 
the rent, we should just stay here and then start investing. Instead of buying a primary residence, you chose to like live where you were paying below market value and saving money and right. invest instead. Yeah. Right. That's something I talk to but a lot of my clients of, about when they're young. Yeah. And, but part of what was also driving that was that we had a pit bull. And this was a dog that we never intended to have as ours. It was a rescue from a pretty well-known traumatic event that it bulls are involved in. And when I was calling around to, you know, try and find housing and people were literally hanging up on me because I had a pit bull. Yeah. And then we got him certified CGC and temperament tested and he was a therapy dog. I mean, we really went through all the hoops in order to prove that this dog was safe. We got a million dollar insurance policy on him and still we could not find housing. So that planted the bug in my mind that I know I'm not the only one who can't get housing. And so, you're not the only dog lover, that's for sure. So I'm a super I dog lover. I but... three bulldogs myself, and I know all about, you know, the breed reputation and the limits of renting with large dogs are insane. It's next to impossible. And we've it talked is. about this at length, which is just unfair because dogs bring so much joy and peace to so many people. You know, for anybody who's got anything from simple anxiety to PTSD that needs that kind of animal around them to stabilize them, to be then discriminated against as a tenant is just sad to me. Well, and I don't think landlords are thinking through the bigger picture of what it means to have a big dog in the house, especially a well-maintained and managed dog. That means nobody's going to break into your building, which lowers crime rates. It means that the people have to get out and walk that dog, which means they're going to know the neighbors, which is going to reduce the turnover that you have because they're going to be neighbors in a community and be bought into that neighborhood. So there's lots of great benefits to having a big dog in a tenant household, but you have to screen them heavily because there are people who don't manage their dogs well. Yes, absolutely. So, that was why initially Karen and I decided to go and look at properties. And then we realized if we just bought a single unit, the cost to us would be way too high in terms of how much we would be forking out in a mortgage and we wouldn't be able to afford that. So we decided to buy multi-unit and started looking in the East Bay. And at the time I had been reading some books on kind of consumer behavior and generations. And I was also teaching at the college level, teaching business courses. And I realized that the student personalities that I was teaching were very different from my generation. And I started seeing all these generational switches happening that was the transition from Gen X to millennial. And I realized you know, about 10 years from now, millennials are going to want things that are very different than what my generation wanted. They're going to want walkability, you know, lifestyle related things, differences in architecture and those sorts of things. They want to be car free. So I started looking for something that would satisfy a millennial. So I'd love to take a pause right there and just point out how much research you put and thought you put into that. And also to say, I mean, you have a, an amazing badass resume and history of experience that obviously helped you a ton in all across this journey, but that anybody can do that level of research and thought into their investments and use that to 
kind of 10x their results over what is average in the market. Just throwing that in there. Yes. And being specific is actually, I think, better in terms of real estate, like really know who your market is, meaning do you have a picture of that person's face of what does that family look like? You know, what is that demographic that you are satisfying a gap in the market? For me, I was trying to satisfy those pit bull owners who could not find housing, who wanted to live in a beautiful house. And that's what started the business. And what we realized was what we were offering, a lot of people wanted that. (laughs) (laughs) You had created demand. Yeah. And I didn't think about all the Husky owners and the Shepherds and the Rottweilers and, you know, all of those breeds that are discriminated against. I didn't realize how much of a big pool we would have. But the initial focus was the combination of pit bull owner and this millennial personality that we knew was coming. And really, when you're picking your real estate, you need to think about who is coming down the pipe because of the amount of time that it takes for you to clean up what previous owners have done to properties is quite significant. So if you look at the average small business owner in real estate, in general, they only own the properties about five years. So they've rubber banded and scotch taped things the same way my parents did because It's really hard in the beginning, really hard. Karen and I were working our regular jobs and working every night on the property and every weekend for about the first five years. Yeah. And that's what you need to walk in expecting that you're not going to have a life. But the benefit is 15 years later, both she and I are retired So you look at that investment for the first five years and how hard it was and the scrimping and saving. And, you know, we pretty much did everything but the plumbing and electrical on our building. So you you talk about you and Karen, and I know that you guys kind of took separate roles in the building of these units, the investment that you guys made. Can you talk a little bit about working as a team and working to your strengths? Okay. So she and I are very, very different people. And that is actually a good thing because we have very little overlap in what's important to us. So we tend to cover a broader scope. And I think that that's something when you're choosing partners, recognizing that you need somebody who sees things very differently from you and who has interests that are different from you, because that'll make them happy to go and do all the research necessary to make sure you're covering your bases versus the two of you or the five of you all being on exactly the same page. And it's difficult because, you know, in general, when you meet somebody, the people you connect with more quickly tend to be more like you. So it's very hard in terms of when you're looking for partnership, you don't necessarily want to look for that person that you immediately connect with. You want to evaluate who are they and what do they bring to the table? And also be really respectful that you are going to have some very different opinions, but to always maintain that respectfulness, that's really difficult. So I'll tell you how we separated things and why we separated things the way we did. She was also a reserve officer in the military. So she needed to be able to go on assignment. So all of the things that could be done online 
were her responsibility. So all the accounting, any kind of documentation, that kind of stuff. So she was able to do that from wherever. And then I did all of the client facing things. And then because of her connections in the construction industry, she was kind of in charge of sourcing our plumbers and electrician and all of the architects. But then I would be the one actually managing them on site. Okay. So in terms of conflicts that we had, she's cheap, 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 cheap. (laughs) Doesn't care about the way things look. So my conversations with her were always about trying to extract money out of her. Sounds like the makings of a great design TV show, you know? (laughs) One is all function and the other is all form. You know, that's a very common... But that covers all the bases because our properties are very safe. We have great foundations. You know, the windows all work. The roofs are all done and they're beautiful. They have beautiful gardens and we hired a colorist, which I highly, highly recommend. That's your first vendor that you pull out to look at your property is your colorist. And what does the colorist do? So our colorist actually is a little bit of a designer as well as doing color They allow you to make your property modern because color is a trend. Those trends also usually last about 10 years. So you're seeing currently the trend away from gray and white transitioning to white, green, and blues. So that's something that you're going to see as we move forward. You're going to see more of that color palette come out, but that's just the interiors. A colorist can help you pick colors that are appropriate for the era. Especially if you're working like a historical home, something Victorian versus something Art Deco and exactly mid-century modern. Really bring out the essence of what the original architect wanted for that property. And what I told her with the first property was I just need to make sure whoever we're attracting into this property pays their rent. Because I like what color? Home. What color do I pick for on-time payments? That's exactly. <laughs> we just painted all like, the color of money. I, like, what do we? Do? <laughs> so, and I think she kind of she probably laughed a little bit, you know, internally because she's professional and wouldn't laugh at my face for saying that. But I really needed some. I thought I was the building itself had a lot of opportunity, but it was ugly. The exterior was gray and purple and probably hadn't been painted in 20 years. And the interior, the tenants had painted the walls. And 20 years of tenants doing this really trashes your house. So that's something that I would never, ever, ever allow as tenants to paint their own house. They think that it's an easy thing to do. And painting is not. It is a skill. I am very, very good at painting. My edges are sharp. (laughs) Yeah, my fiance is a drywall. Drywaller, he's a taper, actually. But his union was painters and tapers. And so, you know, through his eyes, I now pick out bad edges all the time. Like, you know, just laziness. My my favorite is when I see like a painted light switch or like a painted smoke detector on a natural property. I even have seen like a faux finish done over the light switch plate. Like, nonsense. (laughs) so anyway so what are some of your other renovation tips that you want to share with our listeners who are considering buying and fixing out properties 
Well, I do think the going forward, thinking about lifestyle and how people are going to be working out of their homes, at least one person in a family will likely have a home office. So trying to look at the space in terms of the ability to put a nice home office in. Storage is always key when people are looking. And then the other piece, and and this is one of the reasons why I really think women are so good at real estate and really underutilized, is women in general make probably 70% of consumer-related purchase decisions. And in real estate, they actually make more because if you think about couples, you know, the woman is looking at bathrooms and kitchens in terms of what she wants. And the guy's looking at the garage. Right. Who's going to win? Yeah. I'll (laughs) tell you from my experience, 17 years in the real estate industry, I would up that percentage to about 90% of decisions. The final decision being up to the women in the family, whether that's daughters, mothers, grandmothers, aunties, partners, it's always comes down to that. Men get a little like a veto, right? And women will come in and just say like, this is not functional or this is not pretty or I don't like the vibe or whatever, but it's always kind of the final decision. And I've had a few couples where the husband has come to see it loves it. Like they come to the open house, they love it. And let me bring my wife and the wife walks in the door and just goes, no. Yep, happens all the time. Had the same. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why I usually make sure that everybody who's going to be living there has come to see the property. Great tip. I've definitely had some issues with tenants that for whatever reason, somebody didn't like the vibe. And the funny thing is, is seeing kind of the more upper end couples and the women who come in and scrunch their noses and because they're trying to play a game where they want to live in Piedmont. Right. Want to live <laughs> and, in a you know, neighborhood. The hubby is like, I don't want to spend 10000 a month. And right. so they have to go and look at all these other properties before she whittles them down. Yeah. That's, so, like, that's in the psychology yeah. of, of buying. Going back to women, and I really think that women, you know, when you're going and looking at properties that you're going to purchase, thinking through what's important to our lifestyle, what's the lighting like, what is functional in this house, and how quickly can I fix things? So lights are pretty inexpensive to swap out. That's a really good, quick way to make your property look new in terms of Maybe not necessarily architecturally new, but updated. Yes. That's the other reason why I use this colorist that I use, because she knows all the places to go for lighting and tile that I can get stuff that actually looks very expensive, but is relatively inexpensive. And by that, I mean, you know, you're not getting a 50% decrease in the price, but you may get a 20 to 30% decrease. But that adds up because if I'm able to get 20% more in rent because my place looks nice, I can pay for all of those investments within the first three months. So going back to the colorist, so she provides a color palette of let's say five to seven colors that you can use throughout the whole house to pick your tile, pick your lighting. She gave me fonts for the door numbers 
that, you know, I hadn't even considered that my door numbers were not appropriate. She's like, no, these have to come down. <laughs> yeah. I mean, all the top, like, especially in certain parts of Oklahoma, have so much mid-century modern, like they have that certain mid-century font that's kind of like a wide number. Yeah. And you walk up to that, you see horizontal wood and those numbers, and you know you're walking into a well-designed home, like hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> So. Yeah, that somebody has spent the time to go, okay, I want it to look appropriate and I've paid attention to the details. Totally. And she also gave me a palette for the garden, which I hadn't considered that I should consider, you know, what colors the flowers bloom and little details for the gate. She really has given me good ideas all around and I've actually used her for other people's properties that I've worked with in terms of kind of trying to bring their properties visually up to You know, and it's so important. Like one of the modules I teach is short-term rentals and we'll be talking in the course about that. And, you know, you can collect up to 30% more per night by having a higher design standard in short-term rentals and because those are split decisions that people are making and you just pop and and this is like literally cash in your pocket so for people who think that like i'm arguing with you karen because design matters it's so important that a property be appealing to the person that's buying it because it really does put more money in your pocket same thing when we're selling houses we stage them to the nines it makes it people feel psychologically more secure in their decision yep And, you know, that also comes back to what pictures you have. I always hire a professional photographer and then I stage the crap out of it Mm -hmm. because good pictures will bring in people to look. In general, like 85% of people don't have vision of how to lay out the space and how to live in the space. And having that visual talent, you know, of interior design is a limited talent. So laying things out so people can see, oh, this is how I'm going to live there. That helps enable you to also get more money. And I tell people to have a tiny splash of either yellow or orange in the photos because that's an action color too. That makes people make decisions. Yeah. But it's like the amount of space. I see that. Yep. No, in the background. We're on video. I'm pointing at my yellow. In my room. No, I, and I saw that. Listeners. That's why I brought it up. I was yeah. like, this is so perfect. That I learned actually from working in direct marketing and how you lay out mailings and how you spur on activity is that pop of color. So in my yard, I have orange and I have yellow flowers. And always in my ads, I have that pop of color that says, this is warm, this is inviting, and you're going to make a decision right now. Right? right. I have one client who... You know, it was door color. Like we kept noticing as we were looking at property that like a brightly painted door popped. You know, the red door is kind of classic or you might see like an aqua door, uh, a bright yellow door. And it was just so stunning and visually welcoming and just puts you in the right frame of mind when you're out shopping. Yeah. And that color palette tells you the interior is going to be modern too, right? There's like five colors right now that a lot of people are doing for their front doors. And it's just a signaling device. Yeah, and I think I'm apologizing about the snoring in the background. If you can hear that, <laughs> we're pro we're pro pitbull. So. Yes, <laughs> and so and then side note, Marie's dog. What is her name? Remy. <laughs> so there's two Remy's on the podcast today. There's me and there's <laughs> Marie's dog. So yeah. So any other tips that you want to share about renovating? Any experiences that 
things that you learned that you think our listeners would benefit from? Yes. So if I were to do things over again, I would start with the exterior and plant trees. That would be my first money spent is getting that exterior going because trees take quite a long time to get established. And if you're looking at buying, you really need to look at that 10-year time frame that you're going to buy and hold that property for that amount of time mm-hmm. so that you can maximize what your returns are. So I'll give you kind of a visual for how our first property we've owned for 15 years. It was a million dollars. It's a fourplex. We did not paint the exterior for the first 12 years. (laughs) That is my biggest regret because when we painted that exterior, because it's such a visible property in the neighborhood Mm -hmm. and we spent $70,000 to paint the exterior and bring it up, that's a lot of money. Yes, it is. Yeah. But we always say, if you're going to touch it, make it better. Don't just paste it back together, make it better than what it was. And because part of my jobs that I've had was nationwide planning for real estate. So I tend to look at properties in terms of the same way you would look at a mall and all of the stores in a mall, there are anchor stores, which are the big ones like Macy's. And then there are smaller specialty stores. So if your property is very visual in terms of where it's located on the street, that's an anchor. If you buy an anchor store you need or an anchor house, you need to start working on that exterior fast because it will enable other investors to say, hey, something is going on in this neighborhood mm-hmm. that somebody is willing to spend that amount of money to fix it up. Okay, this is a big tip right here because what you're talking about is raising property value for the entire neighborhood. So if you're on a block at an up and coming location and you want to make that block stand out, your property being the gem of that block inspires other investors to buy and remodel all the properties around it, which then significantly raises your property value and makes you money. So that's, that's a great tip. Yeah. And I didn't realize how quickly that can escalate once you have your visible property looking really nice. So about a year after we painted it, a high-end investor bought a church across the road from us and converted it into million-dollar condos. So suddenly our property went from probably being worth mm, a million half, because it's a fourplex, to being worth four million. Wow. Which is pretty sweet. And then now... It's better than sweet. (laughs) That's pretty sweet. Yeah. So now that kind of very visual, you know, a lot of money coming in has brought in all these high-end flippers who are lifting 1,500 square foot homes, creating these huge, brand new, high-ceilinged, very, very nice, almost $2 million homes in our neighborhood that I could have bought a single family home for 300000 you know, 15 years ago. Yeah. yeah. For me, the biggest mistake I made in this process was worrying too much about the tenants and the interiors before I got the exterior going. Good, good but when you're just trying to pay the bills and hold things together, <laughs> <laughs> Start it's where you're really at. hard to see that piece. And I think as women recognizing there is so much that you can do yourself, that you don't need to hire labor to do. So 
I did all the design work. I'm not a designer, but I learned. And this is where my colorist came in because she would explain to me how she was looking at the space to make her decisions. And I, so I learned a lot about how to look at corners and kitchens and closets and things like that that enabled me to not have to use an architect to plan out kitchen remodels. I would always permit, even though you're going to pay more in taxes and it is not fun to get through the permit office. When you go to sell, having a house that has a very clear record of all the work that's been done and that it's to code will get you a higher price point. And because you've bought and held, you're actually earning interest on the money that you've spent. Right. So permitting is super, super important. The other thing is when you're talking to tenants, explaining to them why your property is better than others is really important because people want safety. And to explain to them, this building does not have a brick foundation. It has piers. What does that mean? And so then everything that they look at to compare your property to it's going to be very difficult for them to find a property that has all windows working, a nice roof, a foundation, a dog positive culture sure. that really will set you apart and make their brains start going. The other thing that I've recently started telling people to do who are tenants is to pull permits on the property that they're looking at. It's actually very easy to do. You know, we it do it all the time easy. when we're shopping for houses. So I'm so glad. Scary. The, the number of people do not pull up the permits on the homes that they purchase. Majority don't. It's shocking. Yeah, majority don't. And yeah. it's usually something we put into disclosures when we're selling. But a lot of people don't do that. And a lot of people don't even know that they should. And only really when there's like an addition that we've got a question about or a wall remove that we've got a question about, do we go there? So, yep. but, but it is, it's, it's interesting. And it's always cool to kind of see the history of your property on an older home too. You know, you got to go all the way back sometimes with these older homes to the, to the microfilm because yeah. they don't have the online records going back that far. So you get to see a little of the history of the property too by doing that. Yep. Well, and going into the permitting office sometimes can be a great resource for vendors. And I've certainly had permitting office people, when I bought in neighborhoods I didn't know, give me advice as to who to use for, you know, small construction projects, handyman related things. And then that dialed me into a network of other landlords that I found and that's another piece that's really important is to build your landlord connections within your neighborhood. Mm-hmm. That can protect you in terms of bad tenants. I mean, I've certainly saved a number of people who called me and said, you know, this person said that she rented from you or rented this property that I recognize as one of yours. Would you rent to her again? And no, <laughs> no, the answer is no. But if I get a phone call from, you know, like a reference phone call for a tenant that is still in the building, that is a, an issue. I always say they're wonderful. They paid on time. Yeah. yeah that uh, so now call. when I'm doing my reference checks, I go back two or three landlords because you don't want to be talking to a landlord who's trying to get rid of a problem tenant. Right. right. And those landlord checks are more important than a credit check. And that kind of goes back to my days as a risk manager and understanding that a bad credit score doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be a bad tenant. 
True, true, true. It can mean they had, most people who do bankruptcy, it's because of medical bankruptcy. Like 70% of bankruptcies in the U.S. are related to medical issues, which is horrific. But understanding that and having somebody be honest with you in the process and say, hey, I have a bad credit score. And it's like, well, let's talk about it. Tell me what happened. Yeah, why, That also why builds your relationship. Way? So I wanted to give you a moment before we talk a little bit more about tenants and tenants <laughs> screaming to throw in your little disclaimer because, you know, there's some important things that you have to share with us about tenants and I'd love to hear it. Okay. Yes. My disclaimer is I do not know the law where you live. So I may be suggesting things that are against the law and that you need to investigate. There are things that I certainly have done in the past that are not legal, which I did not know. And who's, you know, I had tenants say, no, did you know? I was like, no, I did not know. Thank yes, you. <laughs> you must research Senate laws, local. Yeah, tenants. yeah, and they change. So, and that's a constant evolution. And you know, I'm very open with our tenants that if they find something that we're doing that's wrong, please tell me. I don't want to ever get into a bad situation with a tenant because I don't understand the law and I don't, I'm not up to date all the time. Totally. So, as far as tenant screening. I look at my job as a community builder and not a property manager. So my job in filling a property is more about creating a culture that is supportive to all the people in the building and to the neighborhood. So I look at people as much more than just their credit score, which most small landlords do not. They just think that credit tells them everything and Right. You know, do you pay your bill, your landlord on time? That doesn't tell you everything. That doesn't tell you how easy it is to work with this person. Are they going to be flexible if, you know, if there's a flood in the house? Are they going to understand that sometimes it takes time to get vendors out if you're only using good vendors? If you want, you know, vendors who will slap stuff together you can get them to come out pretty quickly but the big guys <laughs> you know, I always tell people about contractors if you call a contractor to do work and they're available immediately I doubt they're a good contractor <laughs> like yep. anybody who's like I'll be there in 15 minutes you should move on yep. because good contractors are busy yep. so I spend about 45 minutes talking to people well first I have a very long description ad I probably have about four or five paragraphs that are very specific in terms of what we are looking for and that outlines the culture, meaning we're extremely dog positive, but you need to overly manage your dogs. And if this is not sounding good to you, this is not a neighborhood for you or not a building for you, that we are, you know, Pitbull, Husky, Shepherd, Roddy positive. A lot of people don't want to live around dogs like right. that. Yeah. And I'd rather screen them out than have them move in and then realize that they're living next to a shepherd. A lot of my process is getting people to say no prior to me having to talk to them. And I look at dogs as being easier and less destructive than kids. That to me has been a big lesson of how how much the walls get marked up with having kids in the house versus having dogs, especially big dogs that just lay on the floor all day. So I have a lot of descriptions about what it's like to live in the neighborhood. 
the amenities that are nearby that most landlords just put the size, you know, number of bedrooms, number of baths, a couple of photos that are not well staged and hope to be fielding phone calls from that. And I don't think that that's a good way to get to the right tenant. Yeah, you actually market the property. You actually tell the story of the neighborhood. You tell the story of the community and the people that live there so that people who read and respond to your ad already know what they're walking into and they're going to have a a kind of predetermined favor for your property because of that. You know, they're not going to, you know, comparing it to anybody else's ad that's just like, you know, 800 square feet, two bedroom, one bath, you know, is not, you know, gas burner. It's just yeah. not going to compare. So they're already going to want to be a part of the story that you're telling because of the way that you're doing your advertising. Right. And in the Bay Area, what I've discovered is that Craigslist is 10 times better than Zillow for ads. I get so many people reaching out to me when I put an ad on Zillow and probably have an 80% dropout rate in terms of me sending a long email answering all their questions and then they don't even follow up yeah because they don't no. read the description they just click the button contact now. exactly exactly they look at the pictures and then they go oh i want to you know and then will you pre-screen me before i come out and look at the property i'm like no i want to talk to you and i talk to people for about 45 minutes before i show them the property and a lot of that has to do with figuring out who they are what their brain is like And will they follow rules? We have a lot of rules in terms of quiet. Our leases are 15 pages with four pages of what we call the house rules, which are things like one full page that was written by a pharmacist, former tenant of ours on drug use and what is not allowed on the property. And my attitude is I don't care what you do off the property. But on the property, there's no smoking and, you know, you're not going to be invading into other people's space in terms of if people are concerned about drug use personally, they're not going to be exposed to it. So things like that, let's say we have a long section on dog management, a a list as to the potential events that could occur that you would lose your lease if they ever happened. You know, it's it's a very scary lease, but what I tell people is when you read it, you should find relief in it. And if you don't, then it's not the right place for you. Yeah. Like you said at the beginning of our conversation, you know, really picture the family, the tenant, the person that you want living there, and then craft everything around that. You're designing the home around that. You're running ads based on that and your contracts reflect that. And that's just very smart. And I have a very long history of running it to the first person I show the property to. (laughs) And that, to me, says a lot about the pre-screening process, that by the time somebody drives out, I know that they should work here, and they know too. Right. And your pre-screening is saving you time, right? Yeah. You know. And the other piece is because we have worked so hard on the aesthetics, is Usually people walk into the living room and like literally spin around and say, I'll take it before seeing the whole place just because it has such a good vibe. And that's really what you want. It's kind of like dating. 
I do really look at showing properties and you want to have that feeling like, oh my God, I've been looking for this for so long. It feels so right. I love it. I love it so much. So, you know, on this show, we talk a lot about women. We talk about women (laughs) building wealth. We talk about normalizing investing for women. That's why you're here. I wanted to ask you, why do you feel women are the decision makers in real estate? A lot of it has to do with things like, okay, do you have kids? And you're looking at functionality and livability. And men tend to acquiesce to, is there a big garage? (laughs) And commute-related issues. It's just kind of a part of how we live our lives. Women tend to be more concerned about the kitchens and baths, the storage. And when you've watched so many couples come through and actually groups of people too, because I do rent to groups of like grad students and young adults, there's usually one lead female who is inspecting the property like she's doing a dissection. And how do you think that added ability affects women's ability as real estate investors? Because I think that that same attention to detail could be applied towards investing. Yes. And I do think it's the detail piece that when we walk in, we are ripping it apart in a way because men are not necessarily understanding how a woman will make a decision to rent that space. They are looking at it from, you know, crafting through the numbers piece of what are my interest rates? What are my payments? What do I think I can get in rent? They've how long done is it going to take that. me to get to work? Yeah. The and they're not, they're not necessarily seeing the value add of how do I get that 20 to 30% bump because this what I can do as far as the details of the space. Mm-hmm. And really that that is the way I would be looking at properties. I would yeah. as you're price, talking. Them, <laughs> price them on Zillow, even though I think Zillow's numbers are trash. That's what people are looking at when they're you know, renting is they're looking up your property to see what Zillow says and go and look at that property and see what are the quick flips that you can do. Paint is easy, you know, some tile, paint, lighting, plants, so easy. Put up curtain rods, take down those awful lore things. Yes. (laughs) You know, you mentioned lighting. I think if I think back over what people say when I ask them, hey, what kind of property are you looking for? What features are important to you? Light and bright is probably the number one thing women and, and anybody says when they that they want when they're looking at property. And so if you can create, turn something from dark to light, you can make money. You know, so right. if you walk into a property and it's dark and it's only dark because, you know, bad window coverings, bad lighting, bad paint, that's a moneymaker right there. I mean, I, I love a dark property with bad photos. I know there's money to be made anytime I see that. So yeah. Well and I would say that's also one of the reasons why we have focused on properties that were built before 1950. Because the architects at that time were really trained to understand light mm-hmm. and how to build a space that was functional throughout the year in terms of natural lighting. The other piece for just being in the Bay Area, those houses tend to be built with old growth redwood, yes. which is strong and flexible. Yes. So the earthquake issues are you know, much less of a concern, which is 
one of the reasons why you see newer properties fall apart because the structures just literally are not as flexible and not as strong. But you have to also understand that properties that old, especially if they've been a rental, likely have issues behind the walls. So you have to price that in, but also potentially look at that as a benefit of, okay, well, if I'm going to have to rebuild the south side of the building, (laughs) can I also add in, you know, offices and build that into the project? Yeah. So, so as one of our, I'm going to jump topics here as one of (laughs) our real estate investing heroes, how long did it take you from when you started as an investor to where you could financially retire from your real estate investments? Because to me, that is such an amazing feat and you deserve all the acknowledgement for getting there, you and your sister. And I know so many women just don't even see that as possible. They're looking to maybe just supplement their income. So I just want to open people's minds up to what's possible. And how long did it take you to do that? And how long do you think okay. it should take? That was 15 years. The first 10 years, we were working full-time, both of us, and doing the real estate. And then I went part-time evening about 10 years in. And that was so that because we were doing a lot of construction and just needed the flexibility of someone during the day to be able to run out real quick and work with everybody. Five full guts on five different units during that time frame. But that also enabled us to bump up the rent significantly. So our cash flow is is really, really good. That would you, being would said, you mind sharing a number or is that okay? It's mid six figures. Yeah. So and I would say this is something important for everybody to just do that calculation of how much income do I need in order to be happy? Because I did that calculation when I was 26 and that was, I wanted to have an income of 400,000 a year and enough money in the bank that I would be able to maintain that income without working. So when I hit that number, that was when I made the decision to retire because it was one of those, if you're going to walk that walk (laughs) or talk that talk, you got to walk that walk. And I had done some consulting with entrepreneurs. And I had always said, you need to make this calculation so that you can be working towards something and not get caught up in the more is better. Because truly the trade-off for happiness really isn't about cash. It's about freedom and it's about freedom of your time. And to be able to have enough that you can decide what you want to do and you have that freedom of time. So I chose to live in Vallejo, which is not an expensive town, but it's quite lovely. And people do not realize how nice it is here because it's a bit like Oakland in that it quote unquote has a bad reputation, but it's a very big place. And you really need to look at big towns as very regional and look at things block by block. So I live in a neighborhood that literally has the best weather in the Bay Area it's walkable. It's sunny all the time. It's quiet. It's safe. I know my neighbors. It's lovely. But I am not living in a multi-million dollar home. And I'm quite happy to be here. And my friends who are still slaving away, living in San Francisco in really expensive houses, 
will probably be working for the next 20 years to pay off their big mortgages. So that's kind of going back to the being willing to live in an attic and save. It's being scrappy and it's, it's choosing a lifestyle that fits what's important to you and having priorities fit what's important to you. Yeah. And if you want to have money to be able to travel, you shouldn't be putting that money into your real estate. Yeah. I mean, I go back to what you said very much in the beginning, that choice that you guys made to continue renting and buy investment property is one I wish I had done honestly, when mm-hmm. I was younger. And when I encouraged so many other young people to either house hack, live in a portion of it and rent out the rest, or just rent where you need to live for your work and buy where you can afford to be an investor and make a huge profit. You yeah. do not have to have that homeownership dream, that path that is, you know, the like two kids and a dog and a picket fence right off the bat. You don't have to have that. You can get that whatever your dream is later you know, in life. So I also want to say, we talk about retiring, like Marie is pursuing a doctorate in technology and innovation. So (laughs) she's not, she's not slowing down or anything. You're just doing exactly what you want to do, which is beautiful. Yeah. And I'm working towards having a job where people pay me to pursue my intellectual interests. And I basically get paid to read cool shit. (laughs) How fun, you know, that's what it's about. And who knows, I may choose to start a business and go after a lot of the gaps in the market that I see. In fact, if I were late 20s, early 30s, I would be starting a property management company in Vallejo. Hmm. Property managers here are so awful. Property awful, managers awful. everywhere. I, there's a lot of gaps in that marketplace. Yeah. Part of it is the incentives. So sister had a pretty significant health situation where we decided to get property managers and I interviewed a lot. I bet you did. (laughs) And I said to them, you know, I really want to set up this structure of our contract so that there's a back-end bonus for you if the tenants like you. So in general, you would be spending between, say, 4 and 6% of your income to the property management company. I wanted to, on the low end, pay them 4%, and then they would get a 6.5% if 95% of my tenants said that they were wonderful. So they would be making more, right? Mm-hmm. So I offer them more. Smart, they all said smart. no. They didn't care what my tenants thought about them. Yeah. The customer service aspect they did not care. The only thing they cared about, right? <laughs> the rent, the totals on the rent. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, a piece of you as a landlord, you can save money by not using a property management company because they are not going to be concerned with length of tenancy because it's value for them if there is more turnover because you're paying them a month of rent every time they fill an empty slot. So the way they're looking for people is very different from the way you are. However, there are legal things that are built into the system to try and stop them from gaming that system. So property managers have to take people in the order that they come in. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming this is all California. I don't know about other states. So that they cannot discriminate against people. As a single landlord, you can look at the portfolio of people who are interested in your property and pick from that. Right. There's Um, even a thing, too, about if you're living in a house with multiple bedrooms and you're renting rooms out in your primary residence and you live there, you're allowed to discriminate on almost any category because there are people that are going to be living with you. You can choose gender. You can choose 
nationality, you can choose a certain religion within your living space that you own. But if you own a rental property, you cannot, of course, discriminate against people for any of those things, familial status, anything. Yeah. Which is one of the reasons why I'm so specific, because I want people to weed themselves out if they won't necessarily fit with the current tenant makeup. Meaning, I tend to have tenants that are on, you know, like heavily invested in their careers, work hard, they want for the building to be quiet at 10 p.m., no loud parties. It's a very respectful, clean, no bikes chained up on the exterior of the building. It always looks nice. So that's one of the reasons why I pre-screen people. So before Um, we wrap up today, I have got to bring up something else that you mentioned in our chat as we were getting ready, and that was that you think it is an advantage that women are consistently underestimated. Can you talk on that a little bit, please? Yes. So in the industry, in real estate in general, when you look at all aspects of real estate, it really is something that's kind of been backwards in time. So picture, you know, the 1950s. It's really kind of that mentality. It's very heavily dominated by men. And so as women, especially a team of women working in this industry, I found very consistently that whether it's a male realtor or a male contractor, Karen and I would be underestimated in terms of our ability to perform in this market. So essentially people think that you don't know what you're doing. So they are over-educating you. Some will over-educate you and some will try to take advantage of that. And so being aware of that, I was very quick to get rid of anyone that I thought might not be open with me about teaching me about the building and understanding, you know, structural things. Like my understanding of how a building is put together now is based on conversations with our contractor where he would educate me Mm -hmm. and watching him check the work of his guys and going, Oh, you know, like going back to the painting, the comment about painting, he would pull out a, you know, a flashlight and go over all of the walls to see if there were any bumps. (laughs) And, you know, I would never think of doing that to look for shadows. And so I do think that having being underestimated, use that to your advantage. Even with tenants, there's the expectation that because you're a woman, you're nice, which may or may not be true. But I don't necessarily care whether people like me or not, but I do want them to know that I'm trying my best to provide the best product that I possibly can for them. And once you have your team of guys together, they are golden for you because they recognize how hard you work. and. I do think that there is an opportunity. You know, it's funny. I met with a young real estate agent when we just sold a property a while ago. And I always dress down when I'm dealing with agents because I find that it disarms them because they don't look at me as if I have a lot of money because I'm showing up in my flip-flops and jeans. And it's very interesting how they let their guard down and you get more information out of them because they kind of look at you as you're an amateur. Right. 
And that also enables you to distinguish between those that are going to educate you because if they look at you as an amateur Mm -hmm. and then they start walking you through the education, you see that those are the ones that you want on your team. Absolutely. You know, I can't tell you how many times I over-educate all of my clients. Any of them can tell you. They'll be like, okay, Remy, can we just sign? You know, but <laughs> but I'll be like, no, you have to understand what you're signing and what the consequences are. And I, I explain so many things to them. But for the clients that I am their second or third agent and they've bought and sold other properties before and I sit there and I do my explanations anyway, many of them tell me I'm the first agent that ever took the time to explain any of these concepts. It's one of the reasons I created this course because all my first-time investor clients who've bought other property have never heard of why you want to get a home inspection, why you want to look at permits. We mentioned that earlier. So many things, tenant law, property management, so many things that they need to know before they make that purchase. And if you're not explaining it, you're not doing your job, in my opinion. Yeah. And, you know, there's so many of these flippers going around doing the lipstick on a pig thing. Right. And people don't realize that, you know, without a good foundation, what's underneath those walls really is the true value of what you're buying. Right. It's not the pretty paint and it's not the pretty plants, Yeah. even though that will sell your property. And I've got a client who does something he calls micro flipping, which is just basically a light cosmetic flip. And there's nothing wrong with that. But he's still, he's a veteran flipper and he still goes and does thorough investigation and inspection before he buys the property. So he's not doing a micro flip on a property with bad plumbing, bad HVAC, bad electrical, but I see it all the time where it's just new laminate floors, new countertops, new paint, put it back on the market. And they don't look at anything that you can't see. And that's, you know, where a good agent is supposed to guide you. Yeah. And I would you know, in some respects, be very concerned about something where there's laminate on the floor and things have been covered up (laughs) because you can do a lot with paint and laminate and caulk. Yes. (laughs) Caulk is my friend, (laughs) you know, covering up mold in the bathroom and and things like that, because what's behind the walls, you know, if that wall is moldy, do you have a pipe that's leaking? That's eventually going to burst and then you're in big trouble. Big, big trouble. So before we get off today, I just want to give you a chance. Is there any encouragement, advice, anything that you want to say to all the people listening that want to get started in real estate investing and haven't before it yet? Yes. I would be looking for to try and purchase your first property in your late twenties. Try and get in earlier. Partially, As women, we have to consider that our hormones are changing. And when you get to your late 30s, early 40s, you are not going to have the energy to put up with a lot of the bullshit. So getting ahead of the curve and getting your portfolio going early. And for those of uh, us who are already at our early 40s? Yes. Well, for I mean, just and also a personal understanding of you know, if you are in your early 40s and you're getting going, be kind to yourself. Understand that you're going through a shift in how your body works and you're going to need to spend more time managing your sleep and managing your diet and all those kind of things that go into the piece of being able to perform at the top level. I mean, when you're young and you have that hormonal background holding you up and allowing you to survive on four hours of sleep a night 
not going to happen. So I, would, I would recommend getting your start as early as possible. If you can get a single family home that has a detached garage that you can then turn into ADU situation mm-hmm. and rent out rooms, that is definitely the way I would go. Yep. I would also be looking at properties that are, look at the transit of where markets are shifting. Right. Because there are natural boundaries in roads and bridges and things like that, that hold back investors. It's almost like a wall holding water back. But once that water spills over into those neighborhoods that are just on the border of hot neighborhoods, it really floods quickly and that can drive your property value up significantly. Super smart. So we bought in a neighborhood recognizing all those kind of market value situations of, you know, where were the demographics going and where were the opportunities, but also looking at where were the pressure points of where were neighborhoods that were were scrunched by people moving into either side of them, knowing that this would eventually flood over into that neighborhood. Yeah. So that so that advice, that little piece right there at the end is worth gold. So, you know, Marie is dropping money here, listeners, and <laughs> you should pick it up. Uh, Marie, thank you so, so much for being on the show today. It was a great conversation. And I am very hopeful that this will not be our last time collaborating. I can't wait to get together. It won't. That'll be fun. Do some more fun stuff. Yeah, super. Thank you so much. And, you know, good luck to all these young investors and old investors. Old investors tend to be very efficient in our decision-making process. So that's also something to think about. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Talk to you soon. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, dear listeners, for being with me today. If you love the show, please show support for our growth by rating, reviewing, and subscribing on whatever platform you're listening on. You can find me on social media on most platforms by searching my name, Remy Fortier, that's F-O-R-T-I-E-R, or you can join our free Facebook group, The Life We Deserve, inspired and wildly successful, where I drop free trainings and keep you posted on whatever we're working on. As always, thank you for joining in our mission to normalize women building wealth. 